Lord, thank you again for another opportunity to be together. Thank you for the blessings we enjoy gathering together as your people, with our brothers and sisters. Lord, speak to us, we pray, from your word. And let us see um, something of your character, your goodness. But Lord, also reveal to us anything within our own hearts and our minds or our actions that might need to change. Lord, be gracious to this um, in this as well, in our own hearts, that we might confess sin where necessary and turn from it and follow Christ uh, more faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we are now coming to the second half, almost, of the Ten Commandments. We're going to look at Commandment 5 and 7 today, which I'm not omitting 6 because it's not important to talk about. We're going to look at that next week. But um, it seemed to make sense to combine 5 and 7 as they tend uh, to kind of relate to the family, mothers, fathers, husbands, wives. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Your handout will have Commandment 5 on one side, 7 on the other. And again, I apologize for my sniffles and frog in my throat and coughing. Um, once again, it is the season for those things. Uh, but we've already covered commandments one through four, which have we seen um, largely cover our duty towards God. And now we come to the second table of the law, which largely cover our duty towards man. And as we saw in our first week, the first... Um, the first four and the final six also mirror the first and kind of greatest commandments that Jesus reminds us of in the Gospels, the first being to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and your mind. And we kind of looked at that with commandments one through four. And commandments five through ten will kind of flesh out what it means to love our neighbor, the second greatest commandment. But we're not going to start with just any old neighbor. We're going to start with mom and dad mother and father. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, is the fifth commandment, and it reads like this. I know we're familiar with it. It says, honor your father and your mother that your, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So I think we should first of all see that this commandment is trying to get to our heart. It's first and foremost about an attitude. How do we, in our hearts and in our attitudes, approach the relationship we have with our mothers and fathers, with our parents? It's about a heart attitude, first of all. But of course, there are actions that flow out of our attitudes and our hearts. So what is it that the commandment is actually telling us to do? Well, honor is the action verb here. Commandments telling us to honor our mother and father. Well, what does that mean? Well, it contains a lot of things, and in some ways, this commandment, as well as the previous one, number four, those are the only two commandments that tell us positively to do something. All the other ten are stated negatively, telling us not to do other things. And usually those negatively stated commandments are easier in some ways. It's very clear, don't do this. This one you have to kind of think about more carefully because it's just kind of this broad statement, honor your mother and father. What does that contain? Well, John Frame is helpful here as I keep referring to his work, The Doctrine of the Christian Life. He suggests that the word honor contains three things, reverence, submission, and gratitude. If we're going to consider each of those, and if we were going to kind of... Um, define what the narrow meaning of this commandment might be, it might say this, we are simply to treat our mother and father with reverence, submission, and gratitude. Let's think about each one of these. First of all, reverence. Well, that's a word that we often might associate with the way we should treat God. We revere him. There's scriptures that talk about giving honor to God. This is a very similar vocabulary. We're told here to honor our mother and father. We're also told elsewhere in scripture to honor God as well. 
So how are we to evaluate the honor we give to our parents versus the honor we give to the Lord? Specifically, Leviticus 19.3 says, Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father. Now that sounds like almost worshipful language in a way. When you read elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus' interaction with the Jews in John chapter 8, he says, I honor my father, but you dishonor me. Or Revelation 4, where it says, Worthy art thou, thinking of God, to receive glory and honor. So there's similar language here, talking about parents on the one hand, but talking about God on the other. So how do we make distinctions? Well, I think we should simply say that we should give our parents the due respect and reverence that are due to them, but also give to God the due respect and reverence due to him. And I think scripture's clear that we owe a higher reverence to God than we do to our parents, in fact. We're familiar with Jesus's kind of um, striking claim in Matthew 10, 37, where he says, he who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. That's kind of a striking claim. In that case, Jesus, I think, is clearly saying that we owe a higher reverence to God, to Jesus, than we do to our parents. The vocabulary is similar, but our higher reverence is due to God, but at the same time, our reverence for our parents flows out of the reverence we have for God. Or put another way, if there's something wrong with the reverence we're showing to our parents, then there's also something wrong with the reverence we're showing to God. Let's look at an example in the, in the New Testament of Jesus applying the fifth commandment to a group of people that were not rightly honoring or revering their parents. Turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. A familiar passage as we'll see, but this illustrates for us kind of negatively an example of not rightly revering mothers and fathers. So Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 13. This is Jesus talking with the Pharisees. Jesus was also saying to them, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down, and that you, and you do many things such as that. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, he's talking about this practice. He refers to it as Corban in verse 11, which means given to God. There was a practice in Jesus' day that the Pharisees um, would engage in, whereas they would say, they would make a pledge, perhaps long before their parents were really old even, or in need of support, they would make a pledge kind of piously saying this, well, whatever I would give, whatever monies I would give to my parents to support them in their old age, rather than doing that, I'm going to take that money and I'm going to give it to the temple instead. And apparently they could make this pledge even long before their parents were old, and if they made the pledge, sometimes they didn't follow through with it, they wouldn't actually give the money to the temple, but simply because they had made the pledge, it got them off the hook of helping their parents in the future. They made the pledge, this money, whatever it would have been, is given to God, and so my parents are not going to be helped by it. So Jesus calls them out for this hypocrisy. Now I know that none of us would ever be tempted to do this, to see our parents in their old age, in their need, to see them, but then turn away from them and turn and give to the church instead. We'd probably never be tempted to do that. But I think that this betrays a heart attitude, reveals a heart attitude in the Pharisees, 
But I think that same attitude could exist within us, in our own hearts. As I said, we might never do this exact thing. We can probably think of actions or failing to act that would reveal in our own hearts this same kind of self-righteous or pious attitude. Ultimately, there's no exhaustive list of words or expressions or actions that are appropriate or inappropriate for showing reverence to our parents. It really is an issue of the heart, which is what Jesus is getting at here. Let's think about submission next. Submission is kind of an umbrella term. It includes obedience. Obedience, I think, is kind of a subset of submission, but um, submission encompasses more than just kind of strict obedience. Now, for a child, I think honoring their mother and father is virtually synonymous with obeying them. Now, I know this because we remind our children of this often, right? Probably every parent of young children does in this room. But for most of us, or maybe all of us in this room, we're adults. We're not in the context of being young children any longer. So for us, when we think about what does it mean to submit to our parents, well, it's not really obedience per se, but there's still submission involved. Listen to John Frame's distinction that he makes here. He says, quote, We express submission in our demeanor, our respectful way of listening, our willingness to hear teaching or rebuke, or our gentle manner when we must exhort, end quote. Let's think about that a little bit more. Now, part of the reason that we show submission to our parents is simply because they're older than we are. They'll always be older than we are. And as such, it usually is the case that they're wiser than we are. It should be a normal fact of life that we should recognize that those of us, those that are older than us and wiser than us, we should be willing and really eager to accept their instruction, to accept whatever wisdom they would have for us. And scripture, of course, regularly presents parents as teachers. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're familiar with. Again, this thinks more in the context of having young children, parents raising up their children in their home, teaching them diligently. Proverbs 3 verse 1, this kind of seems maybe more appropriate for an older child or even, even an adult in some ways, where the wisdom teacher says, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. As I've been thinking about this, submission as an adult, as a way of honoring my parents, there have been several times this week thinking about this that there have been kind of things replayed in my mind from my younger years, things that make me cringe, whether it was from my teenage years or even my young adult or even middle adult years, when I didn't want to receive their wisdom or their instruction. I had no desire to show submission to them, even in my adult years. And so we should remind ourselves, I think, I'm reminding myself that I'm not the fount of all wisdom and that I should still expect to learn from my parents, even now. There are still things that I can learn from them, no matter how old or allegedly wise I might become. They will be older and probably wiser still. But of course, we also know there are times when we will differ with our mother and father. We're not always going to agree with their stances on things or the wisdom that they might share with us. And so the way we sow sow submission in that case is that if we have to disagree, I think we need to do it reluctantly and express that disagreement in respectful terms. And again, thinking back to those occasions that make me cringe, well, I was not expressing disagreement probably in reluctant and respectful terms. But that's submission. Thirdly, what about gratefulness or gratitude? This is the third aspect that Frame describes as a way to honor our mother and father. And this is interesting because the word honor in Scripture, this word oftentimes connotes um, actually rendering financial value or giving financial help. If you think about the book of Malachi, when the prophet speaks 
of God's people failing to honor him, one of the ways that they failed to honor him was failing to give their tithes and offerings. So they were withholding honor by withholding finances from the Lord. Flip forward from Mark to 1 Timothy. Here's another example I think we see of this. And I actually quoted last week one verse from this passage. I don't know if I'd ever really understood the context here or it didn't occur to me until this week what Paul is really getting at here. 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 8, which I will read. Paul writes, honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Describe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, verse 8, I think, is a familiar verse, which is the one I quoted last week. And I have always or usually thought of this in the context of a husband or a father failing to provide for his wife or his children. And I think it does apply to that, as we looked at that last week. But the context here, actually, Paul's talking about widows and children and grandchildren. And what he says in verse 4 is that children of these widows should make a return to their parents. So perhaps really the thrust of this context is not so much about husbands and fathers providing for their wives and children. It's about children and grandchildren providing for their widowed parents in old age. Now that puts a different spin for me on 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. He's talking about children making a return for their old or widowed parents. I think those are financial words, making a return. Obviously, when children are very young, or even not just very young, but all the way into the late teenage years, they're entirely, generally, entirely dependent on their parents for everything. And as parents get older, there's usually eventually kind of a reversal of roles. The older parents get, usually at some point, their parents might need to rely on their children to do the things for them that they can no longer do for themselves, especially if they're elderly and have fallen into ill health. And I think Paul's point is that widows in the church should first and foremost be provided for by their children or grandchildren and only those widows that don't have children and grandchildren to provide for them, only those widows should be provide, provided for by the church. So with that in mind, I think it's worth thinking about a common question that believers sometimes face. And that is, in the context of honoring your mother and father, in the context of the fifth commandment, is it ever legitimate to put an aged parent in a nursing home? Is that decision in keeping with what the fifth commandment says? Well, I think that's not a simple question to answer. And I'm not going to say that there's one answer to that question. I think it depends on the circumstances of the family. But when you think about what's the appropriate way to show reverence submission and gratefulness to an elderly parent that can't care for themselves any longer, well, I think some circumstances, some families, some households would come to the conclusion that the best thing to do is to bring them into our home and care for them. I know that people in this church have done that. We have great examples of that in this body. But I think for other households, that might not be possible. 
for a variety of reasons, including the level of care that's needed, especially given the very complex, sometimes ongoing medical care that older people might require. But I think, really, we should be careful, and this might sound crude, we should be careful to never see a nursing home as a place to dump someone that nobody wants to have around. Now, we may have never thought of a nursing home as that, but I can actually think in instances of my own family, extended family, that's exactly what's happened. Older people that nobody wants to have around. So we're gonna put them over here. I don't wanna deal with them. Perhaps we should think about this. When we were young, there were times, lots of times, when we were difficult, cranky, required constant care, constant supervision, whether we were a toddler or a teenager. And our parents never dumped us someplace so someone else would deal with us, although they may have liked to sometimes. Some of us may have liked to do that sometimes with our own children, but obviously they don't do that. Parents can't do that. We just have to make sure that we don't adopt that attitude, the same kind of attitude that might lead us to want to do that with our mother or father. It's not an easy question. All right. If that describes the narrow meaning of the commandment, what about the broad meaning? Is there a broader meaning of the fifth commandment? Can its scope expand beyond strictly showing honor to our mother and father? Well, I think so, for two reasons. First of all, scripture frequently presents God as our heavenly father. We'll think about that more at the end of the hour. But secondly, and I think for our more immediate purpose, scripture applies the metaphor of mother and father to many more contexts beyond the nuclear family. And I think you have a list on your handout. Rulers, military chiefs, prophets, wisdom teachers, church leaders, just older people in general. I'm not gonna read all those texts, but in each of the references there, it refers to these people as a mother or a father. And I find that interesting. Why does scripture do that? Why does scripture use the language of mother and father to describe these kinds of people? Well, I think we should see that every authority structure, and there are authority structures with each of these lists of people, I think those authority structures carry an obligation similar to the obligation that children have to their parents. And secondly, the family is the fundamental kind of authority sphere or unit from which all other spheres of authority and submission are derived. What am I saying with that? Well, God didn't institute the state or the church at creation, but he did institute the family. When you look at the creation account, we see that God instituted marriage as a creation ordinance, the family, Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then Genesis 2.24, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So here's the family being instituted before the fall. And this actually also relates to what we'll see later in the seventh commandment. The family or marriage was instituted before the fall. In addition to that, Genesis 1.28 is also useful here, and we're familiar with this, and it says, God blessed them, and God said to them, that's saying to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is what theologians call the cultural mandate. Adam and Eve are commanded to cover and subdue the earth. And that mandate could only be carried out in the context of a family, of a husband and a wife and their children. And in fact, one family, Adam and Eve's own family, they couldn't have carried out this mandate on their own. 
would require generation after generation, families of families of families, in order to carry out what God told them to do. And I think this is interesting. It's in the context of the family, that is a woman and her seed, that God promises to redeem mankind in Genesis chapter 3. Here's our Christmas moment for the hour. We know that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, and eventually, in the fullness of time, a mother would give birth to a son who would bring redemption to all of God's family. So John Frame summarizes this way, quote, The family, then, is God's means both of dominion, covering the earth, subduing the earth, and redemption. It is families that, um, that people, it is as families that people replenish and subdue the earth, and it is as families that we serve as ambassadors for Christ, end quote. So the family is the basic unit of human society, the unit from which all other units of authority and submission are derived, namely the church and the state. Now the state, that is nations and governments, that's really only God's ordained means um, as an extension of the family to give an orderly way for society to allow a multitude of families to exist together and function together in an orderly society. In history, as God's people grew and came into maturity, eventually a monarchy was established, really a theocracy, starting with Saul and then David and Solomon and so on. God instituted a state, the nation of Israel, built upon the covenants he had made with his people, promising to bring them into their own land where God would dwell with them. Of course, we know that because of their disobedience and unfaithfulness, the people, God's people lost the land, but God remained faithful, preserving his people, the church, you and I, we're not promised as God's people a title to a certain part of land, but really we're given the entire earth. As Jesus tells us to make disciples of all of the world, all of the nations, every nation, tribe, and tongue. The church is an international body commanded to cover the earth and make disciples of all people. And the church does have a government, an authority structure, Frame simply says that the church's government, quote, it doesn't possess the power of the sword, but rather the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, end quote. And of course, there are important distinctions between the church and the state. Frame also comments this way, quote, the church is not authorized to advance its territory with the, with the sword, and the state is not authorized to administer the sacraments, end quote. There's clear distinctions in these institutions. But what I'm getting at is that whether we're talking about the church or the state, these authority structures God has established, they flow out of the fundamental unit of society, which is the family, which was instituted at creation. So under this broad meaning of the fifth commandment, we could address a few other issues. Some more questions on your handout. I'm not gonna address all of these. We can consider the question, should churches be politically active? What's the church and state's kind of relationship with one another? What about civil disobedience or revolution? What about men's and women's roles in the family? Or men's and women's roles in the church? I'm not going to cover the last two questions. Some time ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I think Pastor Dan and Keith did an extensive Sunday school series on husbands and wives, men's and women's roles. I don't have to cover that today. I'd recommend that series to you. But briefly, let's think about the first two questions. Should churches be politically active? And you may say we've come a long way from mothers and fathers. We have, but I think this is within the umbrella broad meaning of honor and submission that God has instituted, thinking about the fifth commandment. This, this won't take long. Should churches be politically active? Well, obviously the message of the church is not a political one. It's a salvific one. It's a message of Christ crucified for sinners and a proclamation that all people everywhere should repent and believe the gospel to be saved. It's not a political message. It's an evangelical message. 
But I think the right preaching of God's word will show that the sufficiency of scripture covers all of life, including politics. And I think we could just make a very straightforward um, comment that where the Bible clearly speaks to a political issue, well, the church, I think, can address that clearly. Because some of them are just basic questions of morality. I think the church has to have a clear message. If it's going to preach the full counsel of God, the church has to have a clear message about abortion, homosexuality, uh, moral relativism, and so on. Yes, churches can make comments about that, things we see in the political spectrum. Because scripture speaks clearly to those things. But in many other areas, the scripture is less clear. It's not explicit about a number of things we see in political life. And so I think that the church should be more circumspect in how it addresses those areas. If the scripture doesn't clearly speak to it, and the church perhaps also should not clearly speak to that political issue. What about civil disobedience? Well, very broadly, we know that in Romans 13, Paul says that we should be subject to governing authorities, even if those governing authorities are cruel and unjust, as no doubt the Roman emperors of Paul's day were. But we are to be subject to our governing authorities. But we're also familiar with things we see in the book of Acts. Think of Acts 5.29, where Peter and the apostles say, we must obey God rather than man. They had been commanded to stop preaching in Jesus' name. Like, well, no, we can't stop doing that because God has told us that we must do that. And so for them, they chose to obey what God said because the law of their land, if they had followed that law, that is to be silent about the gospel, well, they would have been sinning. And so they had to obey what God said. You could consider that civil disobedience. And in fact, around the world today, I would say that there are churches engaged in civil disobedience wherever they're in a place where it's illegal to gather together as a church and evangelize. There are churches meeting now or some hours before we met elsewhere in the world that are engaged in that exact thing. And they're not sinning by doing that. They might be disobeying the civil authorities, but they're obeying what God says to do he has told us to assemble together and make disciples. You could expand on civil disobedience. I had some comments to make about the American Revolution, but we don't have time. So, sorry. Ask me later. We need to move on. Um, we won't have time for the seventh commandment. So I realize we've come a long way, as I said, from mother and father. But I think the broad meaning of this commandment deals with more than simply narrowly thinking about mothers and fathers. I don't even have to turn there. Exodus 20, verse 14, we could say it together, thou shalt not commit adultery. Right? That's the seventh commandment. Well, the narrow meaning of the seventh commandment hardly needs explaining. We know what it means. But if we were going to give a narrow meaning to the seventh commandment, it might go like this. One should not have, one must not have sexual intercourse with someone that is not your spouse another person's spouse. That's pretty clear. But why? Why? What's the basis behind the seventh commandment? Well, as ever, John Frame is helpful. Listen to this. Quote, Scripture presents marriage as a reflection of our covenant relationship with God. To violate marriage is to violate that covenant. And unfaithfulness to God is adultery. All sin is unfaithfulness to God or spiritual adultery, end quote. If that's what lies behind the commandment, you might think of Malachi 2.14 where marriage between a man and a woman is described as a covenant that describes marriage as a covenant between man and woman. You might also think of Ezekiel chapter 16 which is devoted to the theme of God entering into covenant with his people, but his people acting unfaithfully, and their disobedience in that chapter is very much described in terms of spiritual adultery, 
playing the harlot with images and idols. We're familiar with texts like that. Oftentimes, sin and unfaithfulness is described in terms of spiritual adultery. I think modern people might sometimes wonder, what's the big deal about adultery? People in our culture perhaps think nothing of it. Well, I think Frame is helpful here again. He simply says that the answer to that question, what's the big deal about adultery, is he thinks of adultery as covenant treason. Treason, not only with our covenant with God, but a covenant with our spouse. It's ironic that modern people can understand the seriousness of committing treason against your government and understand that that is a severe crime, sometimes punishable by death, but to violate the marriage covenant in our world today, it's no big deal. They don't see it as a big deal. But we should understand that, again, it's a heart issue. When you think about the thing um, that leads to adultery, or the thing that leads to unfaithfulness to God, that's what's in your heart or your attitude that would lead you to that behavior. And we'll see more of that in a moment. But just briefly, in all this talk about mothers, fathers, children, husbands and wives, a brief word about singleness. Now, obviously, Scripture never says that it's a sin to be single. We know that. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7 um, that sometimes, for him, he was single. For him, he saw singleness as an advantage in gospel ministry. And I think singleness can be a divine calling for someone for a period of time or even for life. I just want to make sure that no one hears me or doesn't hear me say something that makes them think that I'm down on singleness. Not at all. But as we saw before, if we understand that marriage is a creation ordinance given to Adam and Eve before the fall, then necessarily, in order to carry out God's command to cover and replenish the earth, well, that includes the marital bond, right? We have to realize that sex and marriage is a good thing given by God to be enjoyed by husbands and wives only in the context of marriage, and not only for the purpose of bringing children into the world. Yes, it's a very clear purpose. We also have to realize, and I realize we never really say things like this in Sunday school, but it is a good gift given to husbands and wives, the great pleasure of intimacy together. And sometimes scripture describes sex in ways that will make us blush. I'm not going to read those texts today. There's an entire book, the Song of Solomon, devoted to that. Think about Proverbs chapter 5. I'm blushing right now. <laughs> but if nothing else, for today's purpose, thinking about the seventh commandment, when you read those texts of scripture, we should realize that adultery defiles the good gift that God has given us, husbands and wives to enjoy together. It defiles that gift, and it rejects God's good purpose for us in marriage. That's the bottom line about adultery, narrowly. What about a broad meaning? Is there a broader meaning to the seventh commandment? You won't be surprised to hear me say yes. There are other things that I think are encompassed in the seventh commandment. And there's a list on your handout, and it's an ugly list. We don't like to consider things like these. And we're not going to talk about each one of them. I'll talk about several of them. But I think these are within the umbrella of the seventh commandment. Because each of these things on your list, in some way they are violating the relationship between a man and a woman, where sex should be enjoyed, husband and wife, each of these things violates that. First of all, polygamy. Well, polygamy is not a great problem in the modern Western world today. Although Frame says, polygamy in the West tends to be serial, not simultaneous. S-E-R-I-L. Think about that. But in the days of the Old and the New Testament, it was a common thing. And some of us may have, in fact, scratched our heads kind of wondering, why do we see godly men in the Old Testament 
heroes of the faith, why do they have so many wives? Why was polygamy so common among God's people in the Old Testament? Well, I think we have to realize that while it does seem that the Old Testament tolerated polygamy, it never endorses it. You will never find scripture that says it's a good thing. In the same way, perhaps, that in the Old Testament, divorce was tolerated because of men's hardness of heart, you might say the same thing about polygamy. It was tolerated. Jesus affirmed the intention for marriage in Matthew chapter 19 of one man, one woman, a lifetime commitment. So obviously polygamy is a sinful practice. We should understand that commitment within marriage is exclusive. It excludes rival commitments. The seventh commandment is given in order to protect the exclusive love of marriage. Next, and you're thinking, do you really have to say anything about prostitution? Well, the Bible says a fair amount about prostitution. I'll just say a little bit. Um, And in the same way that the scripture sometimes describes sin as spiritual adultery, sometimes it amps up the language and describes sin as like prostitution terms. There's an entire book, the book of Hosea, that that's the theme. God told Hosea to take a prostitute for a wife. Can you imagine? Of course, the point there was that Israel had been unfaithful to God, but God would continue to be faithful to his people, even in their unfaithfulness. But as far as prostitution in its kind of non-metaphorical sense, we know the wisdom teacher in Proverbs tells his son to stay away from the seductions of the prostitute. And Paul strongly condemns the use of prostitutes in 1 Corinthians 6. That's all I'll say. Next, homosexuality. Well, we know that the Bible condemns this as well. This is a no-brainer. Think of Genesis 19. The men of Sodom demanding that Lot send his companions out, send his guests out that they might know them. The Mosaic Law, Leviticus 18 and 20, was very clear that homosexuality was prohibited. And so even if no marriage vow exists, homosexual acts violate God's purpose as sex is part of marriage because it's only to be a man and a woman. God limits that in scripture to a man and a woman. We know that. But unlike polygamy and prostitution, homosexuality is something that the church deals with today. It is something that our families deal with today. If not personally or experientially, it's in the culture. We have to rear our children in a certain way because this is a real thing in our culture. Families and churches do have to deal with this. Our culture, of course, has uh, succeeded in normalizing all kinds of sexual behavior. And our government has put its imprimatur on that, normalized everything. And as profoundly sad as it makes me as a husband and a father, and as emphatic as the church's message must be about the sanctity of the covenant of the one woman, one man marriage, we have to remember that homosexual desire and temptation is a real temptation that real Christians can experience. We've got to be, I think, sympathetic to other Christians who are enduring this kind of temptation. We might not deal with it, but other brothers and sisters in Christ may be. We have to realize it can affect Christians we know and love. We may not be tempted by it in the same way others might be. And so I should remind us that despite our moral outrage at the culture or our own personal revulsion at the sin, that shouldn't make us turn away from brothers and sisters that we have a responsibility to love and counsel just because they're tempted in different ways than we are. And we should be reminded that like any other sin, God's grace is sufficient here. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 that repentant homosexuals are part of the church in Corinth. So God's grace is sufficient to transform lives, no matter the temptation, no matter the sin. 
I'm not going to talk about incest or pedophilia, but I think they're covered under the broader meaning of the seventh commandment. What about this word we don't use very often, fornication? Well, this is, again, a broader term than adultery. This is really any kind of sexual immorality. This word in the Greek is porneia. As I said, usually translated in the scripture as sexual immorality. This could really include all sexual activity outside of marriage. And scripture judges this severely. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, flee from this. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. That's a very clear exhortation to all of us, to unmarried people, young people, single people. Scripture doesn't wink at sexual immorality. It gives very strong language to us that we should flee from it. We must be on guard against it. Last on the list, lust. Well, we've got to briefly consider this, if for no other reason, that we haven't yet looked at Jesus' expansion of the seventh commandment in the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to turn to Matthew 5, you can. I know you've heard these words before. Matthew 5, 27 through 28, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone, everyone, who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's a hard saying. Because which one of us, which one of us could say that we are innocent of committing the sin of adultery? Jesus' words, as always, are going right to our heart. Certainly, I couldn't consider myself innocent in this way. As Jesus had said, also in the Sermon on the Mount, that murder kind of originates with anger. So I think he's also saying that adultery originates with lust. So God is not only concerned about the actions, he's concerned about the motives that lead to those actions. And so this is also telling us that it's just a desire that's sinful. The desire itself, looking at a woman with lustful intent, that in and of itself is a sin considered by Jesus as adultery. And that's hard to think about, that the desire itself is considered sin. What does that tell us? I think it tells us that we need to be vigilant to avoid situations, circumstances, behaviors that would give rise to those kind of desires in our heart. Whether it's movies, whether it's young people unguardedly spending time together, one-on-one, -on -one, girl and boy, or we have to talk about pornography. I think we do. If there's ever one evil in our culture that has infiltrated the church, perhaps above all others, it might be pornography. Let's say a few things about it. Um, it's so accessible, it's so pervasive, and again, our society has normalized it. To the world, it's normal, not a bad thing at all. But I would say that as someone myself who was ensnared in this sin in my teenage and young adult life, I'd be derelict to not emphatically and clearly tell every one of you, any one of you, that might be ensnared in this sin right now, you need to flee from this. As earnestly as I can say, you need to flee from it. Do not be so foolish to think that this will not have grave consequences for you, for your marriage, or for your children. We have to be serious about this. A word for parents. If you have children in your home, if they have access to a computer or a phone, if there aren't controls and filters on that, you're not loving your children. You're not. We have to take it seriously. Give it no quarter. 
Don't let it gain a foothold. And if anyone is here today beset by the sin of looking at pornography, well, I would also say that God's grace is sufficient for that too. God is able to deliver you from that if you would repent and turn to him. Obviously, seek out counsel. Seek out accountability for that. God is able to give you freedom and new life in Christ. We're out of time. Let's conclude. Two things I think the fifth commandment and the seventh commandment tell us about God. They tell us something about his character. And I think these things are related. Well, I think the first, related to the fifth commandment, is that this reminds us that God is our father. And related to the seventh commandment, God is faithful. God is our heavenly father. He is always sustaining us, providing for us, and he will ever be faithful to do so. He will always be faithful to his children. He will always be faithful to Christ's bride, the church. And so if we're slayed by the fifth commandment or the seventh commandment, if we realize that we've sinned in these regards, well, then we don't look down in despair and shame. We look up to a heavenly father who is faithful and able to forgive us, to transform us and bring us back to fellowship, fruitfulness, and faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise you as you are our Heavenly Father, caring for us perfectly. And though we are oftentimes um, not obedient to you as we should be as children, um, Lord, we know that your grace um, is able to forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I pray, Lord, that you would um, remind us um, that we are not seeking to simply follow rules. We're seeking to follow Christ and be changed by you, more conformed to his image. So, Lord, write your law upon our hearts by your spirit, and for Jesus' sake, amen.